Hello, and welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Claire. I'm Allie. And today we are traveling back to the Ottoman Empire to talk about some of the consorts. Yes. Well, specifically one. Um, Yeah, we took our little Hawaiian vacation, and now now we're back in the Ottomans, but we're going to talk about the women. Because they're more interesting. Which... They are, and let me tell you, the Ottoman women are pretty interesting, and every, like, the sphere at which they reigned is fascinating. Like, I I literally read a book on this subject in, like, a day and a half, which basically means, like, you know, I think I spent, like, eight hours reading it or something, and I was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> well, it sounds like this, it'll be interesting. This world was kind of insane, and we'll, we'll definitely talk about it. Um like hopefully as in-depth as we can get to but first I did finally look up some royal oops from our episode on the Ottomans a couple weeks ago um just some questions that I think I brought up during the recording that I should not have because I did not have answers to them but now that I do um so specifically I think I had brought up um how during the reign of um Mehmed the second son, the Mufti came to power as like a third tier of government. So you have the Sultan and the Grand Vizier, and then there was the the Mufti. And you had asked, what is a Mufti? Um, Well, a Mufti is a Muslim legal expert who is empowered to give rulings on religious matters. So the Grand Mufti would be like the Mufti giving out the ultimate ruling on religion. Okay, so if somebody says, is this allowed by the religion, then he's the ultimate arbiter of that answer. Yeah. Gotcha. He'd be like the one going to the sultan and saying like, you know what, I don't think that your people should be doing this. Okay. Yep. Um, And then the other question was this uh, region of Rumelia that we talked a little bit about, and I thought it might be Greece, but I wasn't really sure where it was but it turns out that Romelia is actually the European part of Turkey so Turkey uh, straddles the continents of Europe and Asia most of it is on Asia that would be the Anatolian Peninsula side but the small little corner of Europe that it covers is traditionally known as Romelia um, or in Europe known as Turkey um, and so it's that it's that historical region um, that was administered by the Ottoman Empire that would be in the eastern or the western part of Turkey today, um, specifically on the Balkan Peninsula. Okay. Yep. Which I was pretty interested by that because I always forget that. I mean, I know that Turkey sits on both continents, but I thought Istanbul was kind of the only part that was like on Europe, but there's a whole little extra part to the left <laughs> or to the west, I should say. So that's that. Um, and you've got some gossip? Yes. So I don't want to talk about this forever because I think there's a lot to unpack here. But um, this week, the big gossip news was that uh, Meghan Markle's September issue of British Vogue came out. This is the issue where she's not on the cover, but chose instead to guest edit. And... I want to talk about a couple things. Um, one, the issue itself seems to be exactly what you would expect from Meghan Markle. Uh, focus on women, focus on diversity, focus on charitable causes. 
I don't think it's anything groundbreaking, but I think it's a good use of her platform. So I applaud her for that. Um, Two, the British press has gone absolutely insane over this in a bad way, which is... Are we surprised? No, but I honestly, I thought naively when I knew that I heard this was coming out, I thought, well, surely this is like a positive thing. Like what, 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 right. what, what could be terrible about this? Well, uh, you know, she didn't pick the queen as one of the 16 people she most admires. Um, people were complaining that there, I saw one complaint that there were too few white women on the cover, which, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> No. And then there was and then and then the thing the thing that bugged me is that I think that there are some legitimate spaces for criticism, but you can't it's so overshadowed by the over the top bonkers stuff that you almost feel bad for saying that her editor's letter could have used an editor. I feel bad saying right? that. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was very flowery, very long, descriptive. Every sentence had at least one or two commas. She could have said what she said in about half the words. It's it's like your typical thing. She's not a writer, okay? Like, she's not a professional writer. It's how non-professional writers write when they want to write well. Um, you know, you and I... Wait, I think I read that she used the phrase many moons ago. She did. She did. Um, a lot of weather descriptions. Um, you know, it's fine. It wasn't bad. It wasn't... And I'm not sitting here trying to trash her. I'm not saying she's a terrible writer. I'm just saying she's not a professional writer. And so, you know, she's guest editing Vogue, the magazine. I think it's it's okay to say, yeah, it could have used a little tightening up. But you can't say that because the British press is too busy complaining that she didn't put the queen on the cover, that um, how dare she guest edit a magazine. That's not something that royals do. Never mind the fact that uh, <coughs> Charles edit, guest uh, edited Country Living. Harry guest edited a TV a show. There is well-established history. <laughs> and Kate was on the cover of British Vogue and guest edited uh, the Huffington Post. So Huffington Post. I don't think that you can sit here and like say... I don't understand this level of criticism. It's just the woman, the poor woman can do nothing right. And look, I'm not. Well, I, I got really worried when I read that she wasn't on the cover because she said it might seem boastful, which to be fair to her is absolutely the way they would have taken that. If Megan appears on the cover of Vogue, they would have been like, look at her like promoting herself. I think what I got worried about when I read that was that they were going to then turn it around and say that she was implying that Kate being on the cover of Vogue, that Diana being on the cover of Vogue was boastful of them and how dare Megan insult them by saying it was boastful to do that. But I was like, that's what I worried about. And then I was reading all this stuff about it's not royal to guest edit Vogue or do this. How dare she even like ask to do this? And I was like, hold up. (laughs) Like, pretty sure this isn't, she's not the first royal to take advantage of a magazine to further her philanthropic platform. Right, right. And I think, I think there's a couple things there. I think, number one, you know, she was on the cover of Vanity Fair a couple of years ago. So it, it may have been a discussion behind the scenes of you can only do so many magazine covers in your lifetime or something. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure they have 
an unspoken rule about that. Um, I think the purpose for what she wanted to do, if she's putting 16 women on the cover that she most admires and trying to highlight causes and charities, it would look a little weird if she was also on the cover. Um, I thought the mirror was really silly. Um, But it's 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 so the the nitpicking and the level of parsing things out is insane so yes you I you know you can make an argument that the guest editing that Kate and Harry and Charles have all done was not a fashion magazine but I don't know that it really matters because the idea is to take the platform and reach a commercial audience and I thought this was was kind of interesting didn't Charles do like town and country it was like country living how is that not a fashion magazine for like rich oh i i thought it was more like i i i've never read country living so i i pictured it more as like a better homes and gardens i have no idea yeah so i can't i can't speak to that (laughs) i don't know that there's really a difference i'm just saying that it's like it's the nitpicking that is crazy and i think what intrigues me about it is that you have someone with this hollywood background and she's kind of taking the world she knows and using it to her advantage so she's using the fashion world to bring attention to the causes that she cares about she's highlighting celebrity women and they weren't all celebrities um but many of them were and i thought it was interesting too that i saw today that came out is that she's apparently launching a clothing line with collaboration with her friend a fashion designer and I can't I don't know how you pronounce her last name but I think it's Misha Nunu or Nonu Nanu Nanu um and they're doing a clothing line together that's going to be a capsule collection and it's going to be carried in various retailers and it's going to support one of her charities um for women struggling to find appropriate work outfits to go back into the workforce and so if somebody purchases a blazer then the companies will donate a blazer to the organization and you know what i find really interesting about this story now we find out why they split the foundation yes and this is but i wanted to highlight this so this goes back to the conversation you and i had when they split the foundation and i had said i had read that it was so that they could focus on more commercial properties and projects and you and i wondered really what what does that mean what does that what does that look like i think this is what that looks like it's the idea of creating products for sale that can support charities whereas William and Kate's focus is much more traditional royal where it's you just show up and your mere presence brings attention to the charity and that should encourage all the rich people you know to make a donation I think both work one engages a certain section of the public and the other engages I guess you could say the masses but I don't think either one is necessarily wrong, but they are very, very different styles. And I think... But I also think it plays to their strengths. Yes. Well, I mean, look, (laughs) Megan knows Hollywood. She knows fashion. She's, she's, she knows, um, well, now through Harry, she knows Michelle Obama. But some of the people that she highlighted, she's met prior to becoming a duchess. And um, I think she... 
knows you know she had a a capsule clothing line with a canadian store when she was an actress i think she she knows how to take those lines of commercial product and she saw with the cookbook how you can spin that and use that to your advantage for charity I mean, William and Kate are just never going to do that. And and I just want to stress here, I, I don't think that there's a right answer when it comes to giving back. I mean, if you're making a Let's difference, you're making a difference. That yes, exactly. And and I would say that some of these causes that they're choosing are new to the royal patronage and they're very important. And I think that they also reach down to, I actually think William and Kate as well, I would include in this, the new generation of royals are reaching a different audience than, say, the Queen and Charles have. Like, their focus, like, on underserved communities and traditionally underserved by royal patronages as well, like women trying to start a career and going, you know, going through it this way. Or, you know, even the cookbook is a great example, like the women of Grenfell and... um you know, their focus on mental health and families that are struggling specifically to balance trying to make ends meet and raise children. Those are not areas of focus that I think the royals have traditionally well, it goes back, patroned, right? Like it's been like the, the royal theater or like, you know, it goes back to that story about horses or something about the queen and Princess Diana, where Princess Diana wanted to work with um, like homeless people or, you know, she started working with yeah. AIDS or AIDS victims. victims. And the queen said, can't you just work with puppies? You know, it's, there was an accepted, but I think, you know, here's the thing. It's that traditional idea of what it means to be a lady performing charity work. (laughs) That has evolved. So I just thought it was an interesting example. And I think it was very strategic in how a lot of this was announced around the time of the Vogue cover. Um, it's an interesting development to watch and I think you're right it's very clear now what one approach is going to look like versus the other and but what I hate I swear to god I cannot read one more article about this supposed feud it is like today Harry came out and said that they were only going to have two kids and everybody was like, oh, my God, William has three. Was he shading William? What is he trying to say? It's like, I don't uh, know. I think the number of kids you have is a very personal decision. <laughs> I'm not I sure. I think it's very personal. Let's also remember that Megan is, like, almost 40. Yeah, so I, mean, it's not, I, don't, I don't know that they really can have more than two kids. It just, it just, uh, I, I just, I got it. Anything, anything, you know, they're reaching for everything. So, um I just Oh, they also apparently told their neighbors not to approach them or pet their dogs. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, who knows how that yeah. actually I took that as like a community meeting, like, okay guys, don't embarrass yourselves. And then That's what I would have thought it would have been, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Anyway, um, okay, well we probably have gone on about the gossip a bit too long or a bit longer yeah. than we planned. Um, but it is really interesting and we could do another gossip episode, honestly. But I think we'll just be reiterating the same talking points. Mm-hmm. So let's move on. Let's go back or move back, I suppose. We'll go back, back in time. Um, okay, so we have talked about the Ottomans before. We talked specifically about Mehmed II, this Ottoman sultan who finally did the or accomplished the goal that had been the Ottomans, which was conquer the world, i.e. conquer Constantinople 
um, which he did, and he renamed it as Istanbul. So he sets up this foundational empire, essentially, in this city, and for the next few hundred years, it's thriving for a while and then ultimately declines and ends in 1922. But that means that once the Ottomans have their capital set up, they've got their government, they're out on campaign trying to expand their empire, a very normal part of a royal establishment is the women, right? And we didn't really talk too much in the last episode about the Ottoman women. We talked about their system of government and how they pulled from slaves and how they were expanding, but what about the women? So today, what about the women? <laughs> um, and I think it's an, a very interesting topic because it's very different from the royal structures that we've talked about before. Um, it probably actually has more similarities with the Japanese monarchy, although we didn't go too heavily into how the um, system worked in terms of wives and concubines and all of that. But we have talked about the West. And so when we think of kings and royals of the West, we often think of queens and consorts too, right? Like we did a whole series on English queens. Um, and of course, with Henry VIII especially, we've talked about all the drama that can go along with those pairings and their ultimate mission, which, Claire, I think you know the answer. What is the ultimate mission of royal marriage? Get a royal son. Yes, male progeny. That's it. That's the ultimate goal. And it's not different for the Ottomans. So, however, when you think of royal women with the Ottomans, there's this idea, I think, that we'd even more than encroach on a stereotype of the harem or this group of women that the sultan has, you know, keeps in his house and he has this pick of beautiful women hidden away from the rest of society who exist solely for him to bed as he pleases. You know, I think that's a very common stereotype um, even uh, I think today when we think of like this Islamic rule of multiple wives, you know, the idea of the harem. Um, and in fact, this is how the Sultan's contemporaries often viewed them. Uh, I think perhaps even a little jealously um, as these lustful men with their pick of a bounty of women. I mean, we think of Henry VIII and everything that he had to go through just to get a male heir. I'm sure he would have loved to have had a harem at his disposal because how much less complicated might that have been for him? <laughs> Instead of creating a brand new religion, right, he could have just kept his first wife and picked up another, no problem. <laughs> but it's not really that simple. Like, this was sort of true that the sultan had his pick of women. Um, and for some sultans, certainly, they earned that reputation of, like, you know, lustful men who could just bed whomever they chose. Um, but for most sultans, this, this stereotypical idea of a harem was more of an exaggerated view of the truth because the truth was that yes they did maintain households of women of varying sizes um, they definitely ranged in size throughout the century um, but they didn't sleep with all of these women and most sultans certainly never married any of them um, but these women of the harem existed as part of the sultan's household for various roles. So, yes, there were concubines, but there were also often, this would include the sultan's mother, any unmarried or widowed sisters that he might have, any daughters, any widowed sisters-in-law, which we will talk about that was actually pretty common, and most numerous of all, servants who lived in the harem and attended all these ladies. And also there were some men who lived there as well, though, only eunuchs, very important. They couldn't be able to father children. Right. 
but mostly the harem existed for the same reason as the royal partnerships of these western royal structures right again male progeny so the sultans um, the definitely goal. preferred men to rule yes um there is no actual case of women ruling the ottoman empire they are men straight down the line gotcha I only ask just because um, they, we talked I mean, about the Hawaiians and it wasn't necessarily a strict requirement. No, there was no case where a woman could rule. And um, we will talk about they went to great lengths to ensure that there was a pool of eligible males available. Um, and this system has a lot to do with that. But also, you know, they had daughters and they revered their daughters, but daughters were more valuable for their political use and you would marry them off to powerful people. Um, and kind of consolidate your power center, but daughters were never um, considered as part of the line of succession. And I also want to mention this idea of a harem. So harem basically comes from a word for apart. Hmm. I believe Arabic, I believe. I'm going to have to look that up. But um, so basically this harem was, it came to be known as where the women were kept apart from the rest of society or prying eyes or people outside the family. But really a harem just meant an area or a structure that was secluded. Were they allowed to leave? They were allowed to leave, but um, they frequently, I mean, they, they left, but they didn't really need to. I mean, like their areas of the palaces were pretty large and, um, as we'll talk about, their roles were very much confined to the household. Um, but if they were to leave, they could go out in a covered carriage or, you know, any I'm of just... that. But I think especially for the high status women, the public would probably never actually set eyes on gotcha. them. Gotcha. Yeah. So why is the Ottoman system so different? from these more traditional marriages that we talked about? And why did they go about procuring male progeny in such a seemingly kind of elaborate and I would imagine more expensive way than just keeping one wife? And there are a few possible reasons. So I think I mentioned this a little bit when we were talking about the Ottomans empire building, um, but there is a history of them bringing in foreign brides. Um, and they found the political advantages of this to be helpful when they were building an empire. But after Mehmed II conquered Istanbul and he establishes this Ottoman home base and a home base of dominance and authority in this region, by the time you get to the 16th century, They've kind of realized, you know, this practice of bringing in foreign brides to marry is proving more problematic than helpful because foreign brides have questionable loyalties. They've got relatives in other monarchies and worse, they might breed disloyal sons. So if a woman raises a son and is telling him all about this wonderful kingdom that she comes from, he might have divided loyalties if, say, you as the Ottomans want to go and conquer that kingdom kind of a problem and also there's the influence of religion so under islam men are allowed up to four wives provided they can provide for all of them equally um as a sultan you probably can manage to do this well clearly it's expensive but you've got you can provide for your four wives and your 20 extra extra ladies well so here's the thing and we'll talk about this so wives sort of gets removed from the equation because the system of multiple wives is very successful in what it's meant for, right? Producing sons. Um, If one woman proves unable to have sons, another could be successful at this. 
But at the same time, there's kind of a catch. So which foreign court is going to send their daughter to the Ottomans to be a second wife? Right. Right? And for that matter, why should you marry at all? Like, who really wants to take the risk that a local Ottoman family that you you get your bride from is going to then try to challenge the dynasty through maternal ties? It's You know, they, they kind of start to view this as extremely risky. It's so funny because what... What date and time are we talking about here? Uh, this is like early 16th century, so early 1500s. Okay, so so this is the same century in which Henry VIII is running through six wives. And it's yep. not quite the same situation, but all of the issues that you just mentioned are definitely present there. Where you have a, a Spanish, the Spanish send their daughter to be a queen. And then... Um, She's supposed to advocate for Spain, right? That's the whole reason why she was sent there. Her daughter, as Mm -hmm. we saw, grew up to be very loyal to Spain to her detriment. Then you have Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Catherine Howard coming from the local noble families all vying for power by throwing their daughters in Henry's path. And then at the end... You just, it's a big old mess. So I kind of could see, I yeah. know they probably weren't necessarily aware that all of this was going on, but I mean, they were, but they, a lot, like a lot of this decision from the Ottoman side to kind of do away with that system happens before. Henry I'm just VIII, saying, sure I could see hearing of Henry VIII, they're like very, you know, they're probably very smug, like we're doing. Yes. It right I'm way. just saying, I'm just <laughs> saying that all of the issues that they were trying to avoid are definitely present in the European monarchies. Yes, and I'm sure, you know, the Europeans are looking at the Ottomans, especially sometimes the kings who are trying to move, you know, go to the ends of, like, the political abilities of their systems to, like, overthrow a first wife because she can't have a son. And they're looking at the Ottomans and going, oh, that, oh if only. <laughs> nah, <laughs> you know? they just thought they but were like said, godless heathens. <laughs> well, that's the thing. So I, I don't really want to prescribe the, all of this to the religion, but I do think the religion is influential in this because if you're starting on a basis where your religion allows multiple wives or um, it actually doesn't allow multiple partners. So a lot of the reason they get away with this is because, and and it's not considered adultery, and we'll talk about it, is because of the specific women that they're choosing to be concubines. But I think there is a general cultural acceptance of of having children through multiple partners that does not exist in the Catholic They West. don't seem to have the same ideas of legitimacy. Exactly, yes. Marriage does not become necessary for legitimacy because the only person who matters is the sultan. Gotcha. Yep. Um, and, and I think that also ties into their views of succession as well, and we'll talk about that. Yeah, but okay, I have a question, but I'll save it. It's not quite as strict. Yeah, save it, because we will talk okay. about it. Um, so... So the, the Ottomans are like, we are just not going to deal with this. They, the, the sultan is never going to marry, but instead he's going to keep a household of concubines who can bear him heirs, hopefully several heirs, from which to choose a successor. And this is important. These concubines are going to come from the same talent pool where they're also getting the army, the government officials, and the servants, the slave market. Mm-hmm. So... There, this, this advantage is twofold. One, the one I just talked about where these women are slaves and so um, having children with them outside of marriage is not considered 
um, adultery because they're slaves. So that's kind of the 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 loophole at which they're they're using but here. The, okay, um, I'm going to ask this later. Yeah. Um, and these women, because they come from outside the empire, they have no ties to Ottoman families, and they're converted at a fairly young age to Islam and assimilated into Ottoman culture. And all the while, they're being educated and trained to the highest standard through which they can please the sultan. So just like the men are being plucked from the slave pool and trained as army or government officials, the the beautiful or attractive or intelligent women are being plucked and sort of trained through this system to hopefully um, catch the eye of the sultan. And if they are to succeed in that, all of this training will come into play. And I'll talk again about that as to why they might need training for this. Because again, don't forget the main goal of this system, which is a pool of male heirs, ideally. These males are going to be as highly educated and trained as possible to ensure the successful continuation of the dynasty. And of course, this is, this is where they kind of differ. Since the sultan rules by God's will, the succession is not going to be predetermined by something as human as birth order, but it's going to be determined by whichever son survives childhood and then fights it out amongst his brothers to determine the successor. So in their minds, because it's God's will who would rule, whoever emerges victorious from this pool of heirs is God's chosen successor interesting yes but this presents a bit of a problem because a mother of a son cannot have divided loyalties right if she's going to raise a son who's hopefully going to be successful it's a conflict of interest if she's trying to raise two sons into this system so once a concubine if she is to bear the sultan a son, once she does this, her sole duty from then on is raising that son for success. And this is why her education prior to, be, prior to becoming a concubine is so important because she needs to be set up for the best possible future for her son. So she needs to be intelligent, she needs to be politically savvy, and she needs to know Ottoman history and religion and everything that's important so that she can be his one of his most important advisors. What happens if you um, have twins? And if she... You know, I that did not come up, and I that is a great question. But I guess I guess they didn't have that happen. <laughs> not that I read about. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I'm re- that's actually really interesting. And then also because of this, her sexual relationship with the Sultan ended as soon as she had a son. So regardless of how they might feel about each other, he's then going to move on to another concubine, and she's going to move into this new role of raising her son. And as her son gets older and eventually gets assigned to any Ottoman provincial post as governor, as he's the prince. So he's, he needs to gain governing experience in the, in the you know, event that he might one day become sultan. Um, so she's going to go with him because, again, she's going to be one of his most trusted and loyal advisors while he gains experience and tries to set himself up for success. And so in the Ottoman court, like these women are there first to provide the possibility of heirs. Like that's their first role is to try to catch the Sultan's eye, become his concubine and bear him a son. But once you've done that, the role for the remainder of your life or your son's life um, is to focus all of your energy on raising him to be the successor to the throne. And if you are to have daughters, you wanna raise them to be loyal 
to their brother and also worthy of carrying on the dynasty, you know, through their conduct and education and all of this. So most of their education goes towards setting them up for a role of mother, not actual lover. So, like, of course, these concubines are receiving probably more of a sex education, right, than your average woman at this time, but... Um, that's not really the main goal of their their life. Like, the best possible future for them is to become the mother of a future sultan. They must have all hated each other. Well, I'm sure they had some very interesting <laughs> interpersonal dynamics. This does not um, foster goodwill amongst the women. No, and it's it's interesting because, so, you know, some of these women have multiple children. Like, if you have a daughter first, then you, the sultan might choose to continue his sexual relationship with you in the event that you have a son. And then also, like, if your child dies in, chi- like, in childhood or infancy, um, the sultan might not choose to try again with you. So um, these women continue to live in the harem, most likely, um, unless they've fallen out of favor. So um, they kind of act as this, like, extra support role for the these other women like they're ex- more experienced you can learn from them um but yeah it's certainly if you are two mothers of rival sons your relationship is probably very fraught because you're both essentially living entirely for opposite goals mm. and this is also i don't want to understate because this was i think the most surprising thing i i think i kind of knew it but again, it was surprising to read about. This is not a peaceful system, right? It's actually pretty brutal. So this contest for succession, when it happened among a pool of male, male heirs, like there wasn't always a super large pool to choose from. Like maybe you'd have one or two sons that survived to adulthood, but often there was a large enough pool of males. Um, and so this contest for succession was often extremely violent and usually ended with the victor slaying his rival brothers and his brother's male heirs as well. So Yikes. even if the successor is determined with minimal bloodshed or you know he only has to kill a couple and the rest capitulate, they're probably all going to end up dead. Um, so they weren't most likely raised by strangulation. With that was brotherly love. Well, they might be, but then once because it's God's will, like once the successor is determined, a lot of them literally like lined up to be strangled. It's it's really interesting. Um, I mean, not always. A lot of them wanted to be the successor, so it wasn't like they all just kind of were like, "Okay, kill me now." But but certainly like this is most tragic for the sons of the ones who lose because often they're young children and they're basically just slaughtered. Was that mandatory or just... I I don't know that it's mandatory, but it was pretty much always practiced. a good practice. At a certain point (laughs) in time because... Right, because it's it's like how safe do you feel if there are other people who can... um, who can take your claim for the throne? You know what? I, again, found myself very reminded of... Um, Game of Thrones and this idea where Cersei was having all of Robert Baratheon's bastard sons slaughtered um, it kind of reminded me of this because you're just trying to remove any and all potential threats to your rule Um, but also it's important to note that this system and the way it was carried out provides yet another reason to use slaves as concubines because how on earth is the sultanate going to impose this kind of fate on any woman of royal or noble birth? Like, how are you going to attract a bride if you're going to say, okay, first, you've got to be okay with me having multiple sexual partners in the open with the hope of producing an heir, and your son is, I mean, statistically speaking, probably going to be murdered by a brother. Who's raising their hand to get married, right? (laughs) Well, 
So instead they uh, use women who really can't consent. I mean, I don't want to, I don't think I'm romanticizing, but I don't want to romanticize the system of concubines. These women were slaves. They were, once they were in the sultan's household, pretty much treated fairly well. Um, I mean, they're still slaves though, and they still have no say in whether the sultan sleeps with them, right? Like it's they're probably brainwashed no to a certain extent, consent. but that doesn't necessarily make well, it okay. Well, at that okay. point, if it's a matter of right, I mean, at that point, as a matter of survival, it's probably your best chance forward, but it's still not really setting you up to give full consent to this, right? I imagine there was a um, lot of Stockholm syndrome going on. Yes, I mean, well, that is the whole idea of the system: is that you create loyal uh, and essentially they're. Well, I guess we're using the word assimilated, but brainwashed is also probably acceptable and correct. So this is the system. And I, I wanted to talk about this system because now we're going to talk about how one sultan and one particular concubine kind of blew it up and shocked everybody because this is how it was supposed to go. And it's not really how it went for them. So this is the system in place by the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent. Um, um, he's probably contemporary of among the most Charles, Her- uh, Henry, and Francis. Yes, uh, we have talked about him before, um, and I believe we talked about his father a bit obliquely. He would be the one um, threatening Europe as Ferdinand and Isabella are carrying out their inquisition. So. Um, but Suleiman didn't really tingle with anyone other than the three that we talked about before. Um, and he becomes Sultan in 1520. So yes, this is the era that we're talking about. Henry VIII, Charles V, Francis I, Francis I, I believe. And he becomes Sultan after an unusually bloodless succession. Um, it's not entirely bloodless, just kind of from his point of view it is. His father basically took care of any rivals because he wanted to provide Suleiman a unobstructed route to the throne Hmm. um at this point though when he becomes sultan Suleiman is 26 so he has already well established his own harem um while he's serving as prince as a provincial governor he sets up his own household it's relatively small but by the time he becomes sultan he already has four children so he has three sons and a daughter so so he's good he's just become sultan but he's good. Yeah, he's not in need of sons. He's doing better than Henry. Um, you know, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to take more concubines, right? So um, he comes to Istanbul after he comes to the throne. But I believe there was a bit of a delay while the rest of his household followed. And so in the meantime, you know, he's like, hey, I can take another woman. So shortly after he accedes to the throne and he moves into the new palace in Istanbul. Um, and I, I mentioned this because the new palace is where the seat of government was and where the sultan lived, but then there's the old palace, which was essentially where the harem lived. Um, so they're not even living in the same building. So Suleiman moves into the new palace and he pretty much almost immediately summons a new woman to his bed. And so this woman is going to be really important to this story. So she's known as Roxelana, which was not her given name, but it's a name that they gave her probably to reflect where she came from. Um, so she probably came from Ruthenia or, which is what they called old Russia, um, which is today a pretty broad region of Ukraine. So we don't really know specifically where she came from, like what village or who her family were, but we know that she was probably from this area of Russia. Um, and her Ottoman name that she was given was 
Purim, um, which is Persian for laughing or joyful. So she probably had a bit of a bubbly personality or was just really good at projecting that in in this world of being a slave in the sultan's household. She probably didn't come directly to the sultan's household. Like she might've been given as a gift to the sultan. Um, Some sources say either by his mother or by his best friend, but it's pretty unclear because other than her likely Ukrainian origins, there's really not much else known about her. And this is the case with pretty much all of the Ottoman concubines. They weren't really given the attention of history, which I think is not uncommon for women, right? Like the scribes are not writing about the women. They're writing Mm -hmm. about the men. We don't really know where she was captured and taken as a slave or when she came to the sultan's household. It's most likely that she was Christian, as most of these slaves were, and she was probably taken during the Tatar raids into Ruthenia because there's some documented raids at this time that would have fit with her age. But regardless of where or when this happened, she would have followed, once she was in Istanbul, she would have followed the same set path laid out for all slave women, which would be introduction to the household, um, once she's accepted as a so-called novice, I suppose, um, education and preparation, and then she's going to really hope that the sultan notices her and sets her on the best possible future, which is mother of a prince. So this is all a bit of a process. Like the sultan notices her, he might decide to sleep with her, but then there's no guarantee that he'll enjoy it. So if he invites you back, then that's a really, really big compliment. And then he'll basically decide to try to make you a concubine. So he'll spend a couple months lavishing attention on you and then hope you conceive. It's and there, there are like various terms for all these different stages, um, but there was a there was definitely like a track that she's following, a mm-hmm. career path, if you will. So once the sultan does notice her, Roxolana pretty much rockets down this path. I mean, girl moves fast. So she was pregnant within the first five months after he came to the throne, and she gave birth to a son in 1521, um, which again not his first son, but the first son born to him as sultan and the first son born in the capital of a sultan in 45 years. So the city is like overjoyed. She's obviously a rock star, like first time out, has a son, um, and for the new sultan. So she's now going to live out her best possible life as the mother of a sultan's child, which is known as Umm al-Walad. So now she's pretty much set. She can't be sold or given away. And she's automatically freed upon her master's death because her son is obviously free. She's the mother of a free child of the sultan. So she's secure. She gets an income. She gets, you know, servants of her own. And her purpose is now to raise her new son named Mehmed to be his best to or to hopefully have his best chance at dynastic victory. So her main goal of life now is to make her son the sultan. But... Fate intervenes. So Mehmed is born probably in the fall of 1521, but his birth almost directly coincides with the tragic death of three of his siblings due to a plague epidemic in October of that year. Oh, no. So starts the year with four children, one on the way, and by the end of October, the only children he has left are his six-year-old son, Mustafa, and his newborn son, Mehmed. He's actually now in dire need of more sons because he's only got two and they're six years old and like days old. So it's kind of a tragic blow to him and to his succession. Now there's only two concubines that actually are mothers of children. So it's it's 
rewritten the whole expected succession battle and also Roxelana is like pretty damn important now, right? So this tradition that I outlined before would imply that Suleiman probably moved on to new concubines in his quest for more sons, right? That's the normal path. But he didn't. So it's possible there are a few reasons, but maybe because Roxelana proves right out the gate that she is good at birthing sons, or maybe it's because she's young enough. So she, she was probably 17 or 18 when she gave birth to Mehmed. Or maybe he really came to care for her. But she has a daughter in the fall of 1522, which is just a year after her first child, which isn't supposed to happen. So like I said, a concubine could have multiple children with the sultan if she has girls first. But once she has a son, that's supposed to be it. No more sex. <laughs> but Oops. with Roxelana, he's he reverses the order. She has first a boy and then a girl. And he, in the meantime, isn't moving on to a new concubine. And then, over the next few years, she has three more sons with him. So what? Salim, Abdullah, and Bayezid are all born. So he's not only continuing to sleep with her and have children, but he's tripled the sons, right? And... These births are probably all planned or welcome because the Ottomans actually had pretty extensive knowledge of birth control. Um, like, it's pretty likely that a lot of sultans were continuing to have sex with um, concubines after they felt like they had enough sons, but they're preventing more sons from being born. And again, these boys all have the same mother, which is basically unheard of. Suleiman and Raxelana have essentially created, like, this little nuclear family within the harem. Like, their kids have the same father or... Uh, well, they all have the same father, but the kids have the same mother, which is highly unlikely and unusual. And so something different is clearly going on with this particular concubine. I mean, like, sultans have had their favorites before. They're just not supposed to make it obvious. But Raxelana and Suleiman have taken it to a whole new level of, like, people are starting to wonder, uh, is our sultan monogamous? Oh, the horror. <laughs> The horror, because this really, its it sounds so funny that people would be horrified by this, but they, they really were because, like I said, I mean, for all the reasons we've outlined, this isn't really great for their system. It doesn't, the system is, a, is very brutal and it's very dependent on everything following a specific path. And Suleiman's breaking that. Um, I mean, and it would be him making this decision, right? Like he's the sultan, so... these decisions are ultimately up to him and done with his authority and knowledge, obviously. She's not tricking him into sleeping with her. Well, people thought she might be, but... (laughs) Um, By 1526, it's evident to the court, the public, and the foreign ambassadors and observers that Roxelana is the sultan's clear favorite. And she gains this nickname or title, Haseki, which means the favorite, And so rumors begin to arise, obviously, with the public, as they do, that she's a sorceress and spells are being, she's like using spells to cast on the sultan to like her witchy ways to get him to continue sleeping with her. But mostly they're just confused. Like the sultan isn't supposed to love his concubines or overindulge in the pleasure of them. Like his main duty is the defense of the empire. And this is all serving as a potential distraction. Um, And also... Like I've been saying, princes are not supposed to share a mother because a mother of a prince is supposed to be the fiercest ally for her son. And also she acts as this sort of check on her son's loyalty for the sultan. Like she's kind of like his bargaining chip, right? 
So a mother with divided loyalties is only going to disadvantage her sons in the succession contest. Like her sons have a half brother who has this advantage of being an only child with one mother whose sole purpose in life is to make sure he's successful. Roxelana now has four sons. So why Suleiman's ignoring tradition and this like seemingly very clear rationale for taking another concubine like isn't really clear. And it's also not clear like how much influence she has in this decision. You know, again, history isn't really writing this down for us, so we don't know. Um, it could be they were in love or at least really deep lust. Like maybe they just really enjoyed having sex with each other. Um, or maybe he's just suffering grief from losing two of his sons and, you know, she's right there. She's a proven, like, known quantity and it's easier than trying to, like, initiate another woman into the harem. Um, you know, there were some stories, though, that, like, he tried to bring or someone gave him new women and she kind of threw a fit, like a jealous fit. So, like, it's clear there's, like, some interaction that's happening between them where he cares enough about her to care about hurting her but it's not really clear exactly how this plays out but I guess that's not really the important part because the important part is that this this changing dynamic between the two of them is a decision that is not going to have light consequences like there are really going to be some ripple effects from this and some dangerous ones because custom and tradition is extremely important in Ottoman society and the sultan is flouting that and he's doing it publicly and he's having consequences like there are these children that keep being born and everyone in authority in ottoman society is benefiting from these traditions that are in place right like the power that you can gain by playing by the rules um even if you start as a slave i mean that probably makes you more likely to rise in power right because we talked last time about the ottoman distrust of native turks so his flouting of the rules for one woman is definitely going to breed resentment um, especially because this is a pattern with Suleiman. So he exhibited a very similar pattern with his male favorite, Ibrahim, who started as a slave and was very quickly, like in shockingly short time, elevated from slave to page and then all the way up to grand vizier in like three years. Ooh. So he definitely has favorites and has no problem elevating them. Um, and he's kind of doing the same with her. But people are a little concerned because she's young, she's politically inexperienced, and she might interfere with his political judgment, or at the very least, these existence of all these sons from her might give a weighted advantage to the eldest son, Mustafa, because he, like I said, has the benefit of his mother's undivided attention and loyalty. And in this contest that is supposed to be fair and in the hands of God, it feels like Suleiman and Roxelena are kind of obviously not on purpose, but just by a byproduct of this, giving weighted advantage to Mustafa. Um, he's obviously going to benefit from that, but it's, it's not seen to be a fair contest. There are other reasons, perhaps, for Suleiman going down this path, because like I said, this history of fratricide and succession is a very violent one, and his succession was fairly easy, but his father's was not. And his father became sultan, this is Selim, the Selim became sultan when Suleiman was already an adult. So Suleiman has like a front row seat to what's going on here. And his father's accession to the throne involved his father killing his own father, so Suleiman's grandfather, and then all his brothers and nephews, which is 
like the most violent succession on record in a century. So, I mean, it was basically a bloodbath. Um, and after this, Salim likely, like I said, had any brothers of Suleiman disappeared or killed. So he either had them killed or he was like, send them off never to be heard from history ever again. Um, because he wanted to ensure an uncontested succession. Because I don't think that he, he wasn't a monster. Like he didn't enjoy killing all his brothers and nephew and his father. He did it in the name of the succession, right? Like he thought his father was overstaying his welcome and incompetent. And then he wanted to be the one to, to rule. But, but the outcome of that is obviously going to have an impact on Suleiman, right? So it's possible that he thought introducing this idea of full brothers instead of half brothers into the contested succession would help alleviate the potential violence. Like if they grow up in the same family, maybe they're less likely to want to kill each other over the succession. Um, spoiler alert, that's not what happened. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say that that piece of it seems hard to undo. Yeah, but it, but it's, it's, it's like, so the Ottoman, um, one thing I was reading was that Ottoman culture and traditions did not change abruptly. Like they, they tended to kind of slowly evolve and morph like very cautiously. And so this might be like the first steps in trying to do that. Um, or maybe again, he just really loved this woman. We, we really don't know. I mean, their correspondence some of it survives, but it's it's not that helpful because they're writing in this very flowery, passionate language that's very common at the time, and he's writing love poems and all of that, but, I mean, a lot of people were doing that. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're, like, passionately in love. Right. Um, yeah. Um, but regardless, again, of why, Suleiman and Roxelana are not done. <laughs> they still have potential to shock their public and foreign observers again with the links that they're going to do to break new ground in this Ottoman family tradition. So we, you asked before, and I was telling you that Ottoman succession is entirely a male endeavor and well, the and only what, uh, ruler is the Sultan. I'm curious about here is they are bringing in these foreign slaves and I'm sure some of them are maybe from, you know, the local, um, population but there doesn't seem to be a concern about like keeping the bloodlines pure or anything because no so actually they think of this as a good thing well it is i mean (laughs) yeah but also not just the bloodlines but there's value in these women coming from other far-flung places because they bring their knowledge and experiences of other cultures into the palace and so it's seen as an advantage that they can teach their sons some alternate ways that might help them they they they're really good at teaching them a smattering of the languages of the empire from whatever and so and so because their father is the sultan there's no question of their belonging absolutely and they're introducing this diversity that is seen as a virtue interesting it's it's, it is really interesting for this culture that at the same time seems extremely rigid and you know insular and unchanging but they're they're like let's make it as diverse as possible while we're at it because at the end of the day they're all ottoman and as long as they're ottoman and they're muslim then that's fine. Interesting. It really is. It's like the opposite of like, I was, I was thinking about this actually, because the, if you look at the pictures of Ruxelina and like, as the sultans go, like they're pretty white. And it's like this idea that the Western cultures had like a racism towards them is like, 
weirdly unfounded like if you really think about it right yeah like they're well, it's all like, descended from white christians yeah i mean it's like cleopatra was most likely of greek descent you know yeah and you know it's like all these cultures looking at the ottomans as like savages and like basing it on just lack of knowledge is you know i mean it, i find it fascinating um how like the diversity of the ottoman empire is actually really interesting um, and I think it gets lost in history because of the rise of the Turks um, and the way, um, you know, Turkey today would be leaning on a more secular Turkish history than the Ottoman one. Um, but yeah, pretty fascinating. So um, back to Suleiman and Roxelena. So they are, are, like I said, already breaking this tradition. But this other tradition is that the sultan is the only ruler that matters like the sultan's not marrying women he's um you know he's not bringing in queens or empresses into this there's no such thing as co-rule and and that continues to be the case but in 1536 15 years after she first becomes his concubine roxelana does what no ottoman slave woman has ever done and she marries the sultan who was her master hmm. they get married this is like a really big deal um, he does free her first, so he's not marrying a slave. And she's given this new title of Haseki Sultan, which indicates the Sultan indicates her official membership in the dynastic family. But again, everyone is like, what? <laughs> like, you can have a favorite. His flaunting of her is a bit unprecedented. The, all the multiple children are definitely unprecedented. But you're not going to marry her. Like, like. The sultan, like, no one's ever considering that that's a possibility, and yet it happens. He does wait until his mother dies because, again, there's no history of, like, queens. The most powerful woman is always the mother of the sultan. Like, she's this position of power. So he didn't want to... It's probably why they waited 15 years to get married, because while his mother's alive, he's not going to insult her right. by introducing another woman to this role. But this marriage gives her pretty much unprecedented power as Haseki Sultan. Um, and it also kicks off what is known as the Sultanate of Women, which is this era of powerful women in Ottoman life, which we'll talk about a little bit later in terms of her legacy. But she also kind of kicks off the expected grumblings and negative responses, um, especially towards her. Um, because right now... People favor, like, this byproduct that everyone was kind of worried about has come to pass, and people are favoring Suleiman's oldest son, Mustafa, and his mother, Mahidevran, um, because they've abided by the old rules, and he's really popular with the Janissaries, with the army, um, and so, you know, her marrying the sultan, everybody feels like now... Why would he ever choose Mustafa to be the ruler? Like, why wouldn't he just introduce some other rules about how Mustafa can't rule? I mean, he's already broken all these other rules. So everyone's a bit resentful. Um, but also, at the same time, you don't want to blame the sultan. So it's clear that the sultan, like I said, is the ultimate authority. This marriage is not going to happen if the sultan doesn't agree to it. But you don't want to blame the sultan because the sultan knows best. So it's a lot easier to target his wife. Um, also, and we mentioned this a little bit, but I want to point this out. This is the era of blaming queens because Roxelana and Suleiman marry the same year that Henry VIII has Anne Boleyn beheaded. So they're contemporaries with two 
ultimately very different solutions <laughs> to their marital and son problems. But this is a global era of women are the problem, right? Like Henry's carrying it out in a very, well, a bloodier way. But her public is also blaming Ruxelana for all of this happening. But despite the public grumblings, she manages to entrench herself as a queen in every way but actual title. So she has a dowry that he paid to her. She now gets a vast income, and she's using both to endow charitable foundations. She's going to build mosques, schools, and hospitals. And she becomes the first concubine to build in Istanbul. So part of this path that these women would take when their sons grow older is their, their income would grow as their sons gain importance, right? And they would take this income and they would build mosques or endow philanthropic foundations. You know, the um, philanthropy was like alive and well in the ruling class with the Ottomans. Um, and like I said, the Ottomans really liked to build mosques. Uh, that's where a lot of their money went. And the women are a huge part of this effort. But her philanthropy surpasses that of any previous Ottoman woman in both scale, like so the money that she's spending, but also in geographic reach. So she's covering a lot of Ottoman territory. And also as head of the old palace, so this house of women, um, and the female household that lives there that is devoted to training new women and housing retired harem women, she's overseeing all of this. She's receiving visitors and organizing celebrations to mark religious holidays and social occasions. And she's her husband's eyes and ears in the capital while he's away on his very frequent military campaigns. Um, and this idea of the woman ruling over the old palace is not new. So this would have been the role of the sultan's mother. But she's also starting this role in the new palace, which I said was, you know, the center of government where the men traditionally lived. Um, but there is a smaller harem of women kept in the new palace, which would normally be like the active concubines. Um, but for her, she's taking these senior women who live there. So some of them might be like the experienced concubines who are no longer active in her case, because again, there are no other active concubines. Um, and she's kind of turning wait, into wait, this wait, unprecedented... Wait, 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 So he married her, but he's, he's like, taking no mistresses with the equivalent of a mistress? So it's possible that he does, you know, have a couple other concubines, but they're not active in that. He's not actively trying to get them pregnant. Right, okay. Just wanted to yeah, clarify. Which would normally be where they're kept in the new palace because it's a lot easier to conceive if you have access. Right. So, and the two palaces are located across town from each other okay. so um but she's turning this harem into actually more of like a diplomatic core of women so these women are developing political networks and connections with allies on the outside they're beginning this practice of letter diplomacy so they're corresponding with foreign emissaries and rulers um which is a practice that actually only grew under her successors but you know this would be like her and her daughter you know corresponding with like polish princesses Interesting. but but this is not something that was done before, and it certainly wasn't done from the harem in the new palace, which is the domain of the men, right? So she's really entrenching herself. And of course, throughout the rest of her life, she's also in various ways um, trying to encourage her sons in their futures and educations. And as they grow up and grow older, they kind of head out to... Um, different posts in the empire but by the time they reach adulthood um the only ones of her sons left alive are so Mehmed, Salim, Bayezid and um a younger one 
uh, Sihangir, but Sihangir was born with like a shoulder condition that basically takes him out of the the line of the succession. So she's got three sons that she's trying to fairly oversee. Um, Mehmed, her firstborn, actually unfortunately dies um, as an adult. Um, I think of the plague or some other disease. So it's pretty tragic. Like the Sultan actually like very famously grieved for him. And so she's left at this point with two adult sons. So uh, that are in the line for the succession because Sihangir also dies um, as an adult as well of an illness. Um, but she's got Salim and Bayezid and then Mustafa, of course, is still alive. So by the time they all reach adulthood, and, and she has a, a daughter who has lived to adulthood as well. By the time they reach adulthood, though, like she's entrenched in the palace and she's trying to hang on to like all the diplomatic and affairs of government while Suleiman's off on campaign. You know, she, she is, by all intents and purposes, like the queen. But she dies in 1558. So she dies eight years before the sultan. So eight years before the succession becomes a real crisis. Um, and by then, she's experienced a lot, and she's been blamed for a lot. So there's the execution of Ibrahim, who was, I mentioned, her husband's male favorite, the Grand Vizier. Um, but he ultimately fails the sultan in a campaign against the um, Iranian Empire and is executed quite uh, abruptly and surprisingly to a lot of people. Um, and she's also... Uh, experienced and been blamed for the execution of Mustafa. So Mustafa is the eldest son um, of Suleiman, but like I said before, he was a big favorite of the Janissaries, and um, they became a little too vocal in their support of him, and he appeared a bit too lenient with this support, and so uh, Suleiman decided that actually he needed to have his son executed rather than have him try to overthrow him. Um, but Roxelana was blamed for as the influencer of this decision. And it might be true because getting rid of Mustafa would have cleared the path for her sons. But again, the Sultan is the ultimate decider. So it's probably likely it was his decision. Um, and like I said, her other sons, Abdullah, Mehmed, and Siangir have died as the, at this point as well. Um, so she's, she's dead and she's not witnessing her remaining two sons battle for succession. Um, and by the time she dies, it is unclear if she and Suleiman had the same favorite successor. So they would have had their favorites. They would have probably had a preference for who would rule. But again, it's supposed to be in the hands of God. So they're not going to try to publicize this too much. So we don't really know who she wanted to rule. Um, she did tend to protect Bayezid against Salim, just, but a lot of people felt like that was because um, he was younger and less experienced and and less supported, so he needed the extra help. But ultimately, her queenship, this like unexpected elevation of a concubine, was a strength for the Ottoman uh, dynasty in the long run. So she and Suleiman actually did manage to start like a new tradition of innovation. Um, like I said, it didn't happen overnight, and it kind of was more about like bending the rules than changing them. Um, but Salim took his parents' example and sort of followed it, where he kept multiple concubines and had children with them, but he did also establish a favorite. Um, she didn't fill the role of queen the way um, Roxolana kind of did, although he did allegedly marry her. Um, so kind of splitting the difference there. Um, but this favorite, Nurbanu, or Nubra Nubranu, 
she established through her son, Murad, a powerful female role in the Ottoman dynasty that becomes the Valid Sultan, so the mother of the king. So after Roxolana, there's never another powerful concubine while the sultan is alive, but the mother of the sultan becomes this like queen in all but name. Um, she maintains this letter diplomacy that Roxolana started. Nurbanu actually notably corresponds with Catherine de' Medici. Um, who is the regent mother of the king of France. Mm. Um, and she also continues Roxolana's philanthropic efforts. Um, so she's carrying on this tradition, but in kind of a different way. So it's like a funhouse mirror view of what Roxolana and Suleiman did. Um, and Selim, meanwhile, um, continues to innovate in another way. So he decides to send only his eldest son to a provincial rule, which basically thereby has the effect of anointing him as heir apparent. So if he's the only one gaining governmental experience, he's the only one that can rule, um, which should eliminate the need for a bloody succession, which also kind of fits with the timing here. Um, after Suleiman, the Ottoman campaigns uh, were f less frequent, and so war becomes less frequent, and the sultans are becoming more stay-at-home rulers of the palace. Um, however, this evolution of the succession system doesn't quite go bloodlessly so his son Murad this one who's sent to provincial rule he and his son Mehmed both still had all their younger brothers executed this creates a bit of a problem though because this execution happening a bit closer to home in the capital kind of has the effect of turning public favor more against the fratricide um because if it's happening out in the countryside they're not really they're aware of it, but they're not witnessing it. Um, but seeing all the coffins following Murad after his death was a bit much for the public. And so from then on, the succession just goes to the next oldest living male, regardless of his relationship to the previous sultan. So it's just the next oldest living male, regardless of if he's son or uncle or brother. But if the sultan proves to be incompetent or dangerously unpopular, they could be deposed and replaced with the next person in line. So eventually, it takes a few generations, but this fratricide does fall out of fashion and the women throughout this keep maintaining power so they actually even had their own kind of miniature version of like what happens with mary queen of scots and elizabeth um, and it happens in the same century so a bit contemporaneously there's a political rivalry between two powerful women when there's this ultra powerful dowager queen kosam so she's got this role of valid sultan the mother of the sultan but she's challenged by a younger queen mother because she refuses to retire. So her son dies and her grandson becomes sultan. And she decides, no, 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 no. You know what? I'm going to continue governing as regent. This new sultan's mother is like, no, you're not. <laughs> so she orders Kosum's execution much in the way that Elizabeth did Mary's. Um, I actually think I was reading that this woman Kosum like hid in a closet and she was only found because like a piece of her dress was sticking out under the door so they found her and strangled her that was kind of the moment when I was like we have to talk about this yeah <laughs> um so Turhan is the last of these so-called female sultans so she returns the government that had been essentially being run by Kosum um she returns the power of it to the grand vizier and she ends this this sultanate of women um, but the queen mother, this valid sultan position, remains influential up until the end of the empire in 1922. 
Um, so Roxolana starts a trend, and she and Suleiman, I think, are really fascinating because, you know, he's known as Suleiman the Magnificent. He was very successful militarily in his rule, but he was also known as this just and wise ruler. In fact, um, Suleiman, I believe, is the version of Solomon, like it's the same name. Um, and so he was kind of this, like, uh, allegory to Solomon in the Bible, the famously wise king. Um, so he is really beloved by his people and like, or maybe not beloved, but revered. Um, but I actually thought that it's really interesting that his perhaps lasting legacy for the Ottomans came through his wife and through the angle of the women in the harem. So, which I think is a much more interesting angle to talk about than military campaigns. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I didn't know any of this, and I think you're right. It was such a stereotype, and then you, you learn about it, and of course, it's never quite what you expect. Yeah, I think I, like, texted you the other day, and I was like, we are talking mm-hmm. about these women because there's, like, murder and, like, strangulation, and, like, it's all, it's also, like, I mean, the this book is actually really good. Um, it's called Empress of the East, and I'll, I should link it um, on our page, but it, I just, like, I cannot overstate how bloody and violent and like crazy this whole system really was. And the fact that it was all contained within this set of rules and traditions and like a prescribed way of going about education and, and how this happens, like everything is so regimented and regulated yet it's so violent. I, that's the thing I can't get over. Like, I don't know. Which maybe is, maybe helps contribute to this idea of like, you know, Ottoman heathen barbarians because it is known as being very violent and bloody, but I don't know that it's that much more violent and bloody than Richard III murdering his nephews or, you know, there were some kings that were killed in cold blood. It's, you know, and Henry beheaded two of his wives. Like, it's, I don't know. I feel like it's not that much worse. Yeah. (laughs) It's a bloody century, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just, well, it's not like we've evolved. I mean, that's true. So, um, okay, well, that is our little high-level view into the Ottoman women. I hope everyone is interested to explore more because I know that I want to. I, I think Kosum sounded really interesting too, but I thought Roxelana was probably, as the trendsetter, the better one to talk about. So. Yeah, well, that was good. Yeah. yeah, so we will be back for one more episode, I believe, in this little series that we're doing. Um, topic tbd but yeah so until then until then monarchast is produced by me ali and me claire and our logo is by ryan cooney if you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out please rate or review us on itunes or google play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is we really appreciate it